please join with me in prayer. Almighty God, we pray that Your Word would ring out in our hearts and that uh, we would look afresh with a renewed faith upon our Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. It may surprise you that I don't get out on much on Sunday mornings to hear preaching in other churches. I do listen to, to sermons on the internet from time to time, but it's usually sermons by pastors that I have learned from and have influenced me over the years. So I don't get much preaching from the typical mainline churches. I hear from others, however, that there's a tendency in the mainline churches to only preach the happy passages of Scripture. Passages about hell, or passages with too much judgment are often passed over. Topics such as sin and repentance only receive cursory mention. Typically, whole sermons are not devoted to those issues. Now, don't get me wrong. I love preaching the happy passages. I love proclaiming God's grace, God's love, and God's protection. I love preaching about how Christ purchased our forgiveness, our righteousness, and our eternal life. I love telling you about how the Holy Spirit gives us everything that Christ secured for us on the cross. And how He empowers us to be holy. And how He has made our hearts His eternal home. Dwelling on these topics makes me happy. Now, if we only dwell on these happy passages and ignore the passages about hell and judgment and sin and repentance, then what we've done is abridged and distorted the message of the Bible. Distorting the message of the Bible means that we have changed the message of the Gospel. Although I don't listen to much preaching outside my own circle of influence, I do know that there are many many versions of the Gospel message that do indeed distort the Gospel by focusing, only, by focusing only on the happy parts of the Gospel. The parts like love, love, love. Um, eternal life. You want to have eternal life. And assurance of salvation. You know, when you have focused on those things exclusively to the exclusion of other things that are essential to the gospel message, you've distorted the gospel. Or as J.I. Packer says, when a half-truth is presented as the whole truth, you have a complete untruth. I say all that because this passage of Scripture that we have before us this morning is not a happy passage. It is quite sad. The, the message of this passage is so terrible, in fact, that it brought the prophet Elisha to tears. There is a brutal murder described in this passage, but that's not what makes this passage so dreadfully sad. What makes this passage so sad is the announcement of judgment against the people of Israel. Look with me at verse 12. 
And Haziel, or Haziel said, Why does my Lord weep? Elisha answered, Because I know the evil that you will do to the people of Israel. You will set on fire their fortresses, and you will kill their young men with the sword, and dash in pieces their little ones, and rip open their pregnant women. It doesn't get much more gut-wrenching than that. In our study of Elisha, there's been many happy passages. But this passage marks a turn in Elisha's ministry. From this point forward, there are no more happy passages in the life and ministry of Elisha. From from henceforth until his death, all he's going to be doing is pronouncing judgment upon God's people. And I think the point of Elisha's life, as we look at it as it's presented in the book of 2 Kings, is that God loves to be gracious to sinners. He's gracious to the nation of Israel. He was gracious to individuals in Israel. He was gracious even to uh, Ben-Hadad, king of Syria. He was gracious to Naaman, who was one of the chief commanders of the Syrian army. But, if they refuse and reject all his invitations to trust Him, then judgment awaits and it will be severe. And so we've seen all these happy passages of Elisha's ministry as he bids people to trust in the Lord. But now it turns and he says, if you continue in your refusal, if you continue in your rejection of me or of the Gospel and of God, then the judgment is coming. Now to be clear, God is not pouring out judgment because they have refused and rejected Him. In other words, God doesn't have hurt feelings. They were, as we all are, under judgment from the time we are born into this world. All who are outside Jesus Christ are under judgment. If you are outside Jesus Christ right now, you right now are under God's judgment. God used the ministry of Elisha to call Israel and Syria to come to Him for salvation from the judgment that was awaiting them. But because they refused, judgment was certain. So in our passage, our really sad passage, Elisha has traveled outside of Israel. He's traveled to Syria, even to the capital city of Syria. I don't know why Elisha is in Damascus. It's kind of a curious thing. Uh, Syria was an enemy of Israel. Syria had many times invaded Israel. We just saw uh, where Ben-Hadad and... uh, and, and the Syrian army surrounded the city of Samaria and almost starved them to death. But now we find Elisha. He's in Damascus, the capital city of Syria. And Ben-Hadad, the king of Syria, uh, knows he's there. 
He's come to respect and revere Elisha. And Ben-Hadad has fallen sick. Presumably, it's a very severe sickness. He wonders if he's going to live. So he sent his servant to go and speak with Elisha and inquire of Elisha whether uh, the king would live or die from his sickness. Ben-Hadad's servant, whom he sent to Elisha, was named uh, Haziel. It appears that Haziel had no relation to the royal family of Syria. It appears that he was just a very effective advisor who had risen through the ranks of Ben-Hadad's administration. In fact, they found the Syrian documents uh, from this time period that say that indeed Haziel succeeded Ben-Hadad as king of Syria. And in these documents, they refer to Haziel as a son of a nobody because he wasn't He didn't have a royal lineage. But Haziel did not think of himself as a nobody. He thought of himself as a great person. He thought of himself as being worthy of being king of the nation of Syria. So when Haziel appeared before Elisha to bring Ben-Hadad's message, Elisha answered the question about Ben-Hadad's sickness by saying, Go and say to him, You will certainly recover but the Lord has shown me that he will certainly die. The illness would not be fatal, but another means was was appointed by which he would die. I don't know if God revealed to Elisha the exact way that Ben-Hadad would die, but it seems clear that he knew that Haziel would murder him. So in verse 11 we read, And Elisha, fixed his gaze and stared at Haziel until Haziel was embarrassed and the man of God wept. Elisha went on to tell Haziel that he would succeed Ben-Hadad as king in verse 13. Elisha uh, did not tell Haziel that he would murder the king to gain the kingship, but we know from the passage that that's what Haziel did. Look at verse 15. It says, the next day he took the, the bedcloth and dipped it in water and spread it over his face till he died. And Haziel became king in his place. What is this, the point of this passage of Scripture? Why is it necessary that we hear about this palace intrigue in Syria? Why should something that happened in Syria be important enough to include in the Hebrew Scriptures? Well, we saw the answer to this question back in verse 12. And I'll read it again. And Haziel said, Why does my Lord weep? Elisha answered, Because I know the evil that you will do to the people of Israel. You will set on fire their fortresses, and you will kill their young men with the sword, and dash in pieces their little ones, and rip open their pregnant women. God has ordained that Haziel would be God's instrument of discipline upon the nation of Israel. Because Israel's rejection of God and their refusal to place their trust in Him, God was going to bring great suffering 
upon the nation of Syria. God had already brought three and a half years of severe drought under Elijah's ministry. I'm sorry, under Elijah's ministry, all with the the intention that the people repent. And then, nearly ten years later, he brought a full seven years of drought under Elisha's ministry. Additionally, God allowed Syria to invade Israel several several times as a warning for them to repent. But since Israel continued in its Baal worship and continued in its refusal to faithfully turn to the Lord, God was bringing Haziel as a brutal and unrelenting instrument of terror. He would set on fire their fortresses, kill their young with the sword, dash in pieces their little ones, and rip open their pregnant women. If you think this is too great a judgment, and that God is acting uh, immorally in allowing this to happen to Israel, you need to remember that hell is a reality. The punishment upon Israel was a foretaste of their eternity without God. This brutal discipline was a warning uh, for them to return to God. If you read Deuteronomy chapter 28, or if you read Leviticus chapter 26, you'll see that God had said many centuries previously that covenant breaking, that faithlessness to God would result in just these kinds of judgment. It would result in severe drought and famine. It would result in... uh, invading nations. It would result in their cities being surrounded and starved. It would result in their young men being killed, in their children being cut to pieces, in their um, pregnant women being ripped open, killing both them and the unborn child. This passage is recorded in the Bible, not only for the Israelites, but also for us. Jesus plainly says that most people who call upon Him really do not submit to Him in faith. The parable of the wedding feast in Matthew 22 makes this point clear. Jesus said to His servants, the wedding feast is ready, but those invited were not worthy. Go therefore to the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many as you find. And those servants went out into the roads and gathered all whom they found, both bad and good, so that the wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the king came in to look at the guests, he saw there a man who had no wedding garment. And he said to him, Friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then the king said to the attendants, Bind him hand and foot and cast him out into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are called, but few are chosen. And I guess I misspoke as I was um, when I said that most people who call upon him really do not submit to him in faith. What I would say is most people who, do, who hear the gospel preaching Those people who sit under the gospel preaching do not submit to Him in faith. 
Most only want a fire insurance policy. Most only want Jesus for what He can do for them. But they they want to keep Him at arm's length. Instead of a loving relationship with Jesus, they want a contractual relationship with Jesus. Jesus, I'll pray the prayer. I'll walk the aisle. I'll be baptized. I'll give my tithes. I'll come to church if You let me into heaven. Jesus, I'll be good to, to my neighbor if You'll let me into heaven. But don't ask to be the Lord of every part of my life. If you're here this morning and you are treating Jesus in this disrespectful way, if you are saying, Lord, Lord, while refusing to live according to His commandments, if you are the final authority in your life rather than Jesus Christ, if you have areas of your life that you refuse to let Christ have the Lordship, then you are heading in the same direction as the Israelites in our passage. You are headed to hell. You are under God's judgment. You are headed toward that place that Jesus described in Mark chapter 9 when He says, And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go into hell to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. If you reject the doctrine of hell, you are rejecting the gospel because Jesus taught the doctrine of hell just as clearly as He taught the gospel. It has become fashionable for people to teach that the fire of hell that Jesus describes is only a metaphorical fire. Now put that aside for a moment, this fact that there is no evidence that Jesus is speaking metaphorically when He describes hell. Put that aside for a moment. And let me ask you, who worries about a metaphorical fire so that Jesus would warn us so sternly of ending up there. You know, if a person were to threaten me to give me a metaphorical blow upon my head, I would not worry much about it. He'd be pleased and welcome to give me as many more metaphorical beatings about my head as he would be pleased to give. If you think lightly of hell, I guarantee you that you also think lightly of the cross. And you probably think lightly of our Savior as well. I know people struggle with the doctrine of eternal punishment because they wonder how it could be consistent with the goodness of God. I only have one response. And that is, Does God reveal the doctrine of eternal punishment in the Bible? 
Well, you know He does. So believe it. And leave to God the vindication or the reason why He created hell in the first place. Hell will be a place where all who go there will be eternally forsaken by God. Those in hell will always be dying, but never dead. And above the gates of hell, I imagine the phrase will be written, too late. All hell will be awful. But Charles Spurgeon says that there will be one thing in hell that will be worse than anything else. The worst thing will be seeing the saints in heaven, he says. So listen to him. He says, Oh, to think of seeing my mother in heaven while I am cast out. Husband, there is your wife in heaven, and you are among the damned. And do you see your father? Your child is before the throne, and you, accursed of God and man, are in hell. Oh, the hell of hells will be to see our friends in heaven and ourselves lost. Jesus loved hell-deserving sinners like you and me. He loved us enough to leave His paradise and glory and to come here to earth to be our Savior. Not everyone gets to hear this message of grace. Some of you are here every Sunday hearing it. What if you die without Christ and you have to answer for why you never believed, never trusted, or never truly loved Jesus Christ? In this very sad passage... The Gospel's here. You see it in the tears of Elisha as he wept because Elisha was embodying the emotions of God. God says He takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. God says He is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to a saving faith in Jesus Christ. So have you come? Have you fled to Jesus Christ as your refuge from hell? As your refuge from your sins? Oh, come to Him today. Come to Him now. Today is the day of salvation as we pray together. Almighty God, we thank You for passages like this being included in the Bible. Lord, it breaks our hearts that the Israelites persisted in their rebellion. They persisted in their refusal to turn away from false gods. They persisted in their unbelief. And in Your grace, You use them to be a beacon to us, calling out to us from across the centuries, turn to the Lord Jesus Christ. Look to Him and be saved. 
And Lord, it breaks our heart again because we know that there are many who refuse to come to Jesus on His terms, refuse to come to Him that they might have life. Oh Lord, I seek You again today and I ask that none within the hearing of my voice would leave here today without casting themselves on Jesus Christ our Lord. We pray in His name. Amen.